This is a quote from my next guest. It should be an amazing time to be in advertising right now. We know who they are, we know where they are, and we know what they like. Yet somehow, it turns out that this is actually the most challenging time. In this episode, we're going to dive into what happens when the most powerful company in the world, with access to every single piece of data behind what we view, where we view it, on what platforms and for how long, Oh, by the way, we currently spend 1 billion hours a day at the moment viewing things on one platform or another. What happens when that company decides to completely decode what gets and what keeps our attention? Well, the first answer is that some kind of weird nerdy freak like me sits up and starts paying a very large amount of attention. The second answer is that everything that we think we know about advertising, about human behavior, about our wiring when it comes to storytelling and about our attention spans, suddenly gets called into question. My name is Julie Masters and welcome to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers, thinkers, people out there on the fringes of thought when it comes to influence and try to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it in order to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement, or a nation. My next guest is Ben Jones, creative director at Google and head of Unskippable Labs. Now, I first heard about Unskippable Labs when someone sent me a video called The Mobile Recut. For anyone working in digital marketing, advertising, or you just have a thirst to understand content and how our attention spans have changed at a whole new level, I highly, highly recommend that you check it out. In fact, check out anything Unskippable Labs have ever done. At the heart of Unskippable Labs is this question of what happens when Google decides to decode content marketing? Now, that's, that's a crazy question to me because you would think that they already know. You would think that Google, this big omnipotent G in the sky, already has access to all of this information. What we watch, how long we watch it for, how we take action, when we take action, how our ages and genders impact what we buy into and what we don't buy into, on what platforms we watch things and how long we watch them for based on those platforms. But it turns out that Google have just as many questions about all of this as we do. My next guest decided in trying to answer some of those questions to put a small team together and literally put his own credit card down on the line in order to answer some of those questions. He decided to run a number of experiments in conjunction with some of the world's largest brands to try and see if he could actually figure out what we're watching, when, where, and for how long. Now, what they found blew my mind, blew my tiny mind, including how long your average human being is literally willing to stare at a brick wall. You'll have to listen to understand that, but when you get there, I have no doubt you'll have the same response that I had. So in our conversation, we... We really got into it. We, we delved into how the rise of mobile has changed the game of storytelling forever. What works and what doesn't work when it comes to online storytelling. Now, when I say online storytelling, I'm talking about everything. I'm talking about advertising. I'm talking about marketing. I'm talking about brand messages. And I'm also talking about individual pieces of content. Why content length is the wrong metric 
for capturing and keeping attention. This one is vital, I think. What makes a compelling online video and why it's totally not what you think it is? How mastering choice points is now the key to creating compelling content? And the Netflix effect. Why our attention spans are shorter and longer than ever before. So are we different? Have we changed? Has mobile rewired hundreds of years worth of DNA when it comes to how we like to spend our time, what things we buy into and how we buy into them? To answer that question and so many more, please sit back and enjoy my conversation with Ben Jones. We recorded this particular episode. I was in Bali on holiday with my family in the middle of a thunderstorm. He was in Boston, sat literally in the middle of a snow blizzard. So at points, the audio may be a little bit sketchy. However, it is 100% worth it. And I just hope that you enjoy every second of my conversation with Ben Jones. Ben Jones, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So I'm so pleased that you managed to make it this morning. It's minus 20 where you are right now. Trying to stay not frozen. (laughs) You've shoveled a path from your house to be here today. Now I'm going to kick off with the way that I always kick off, which is with the question, do you consider yourself to be an introvert or an extrovert? And I find this question especially interesting with you because you run a team of people that are doing some incredible things almost behind the scenes, and yet you're making a huge impact. So introvert or extrovert for you? No question, introvert hardcore introvert. Really? So you must find the work that you do a pleasure and a pain because you're behind the scenes, but you've also got to go out there and start talking about it. I I think that I love the work and the work is super exciting. The the act of talking about it is very exciting, but super draining. So I finish talking about it and, and, and retreat. Retreat to your snow castle. And that's exactly right. The fortress of solitude. (laughs) All right. Well, we'll try and make this as painless as possible, I promise. So tell me a little bit about Unskippable. What is it? How did it come about? What did you hope to learn? We started uh, Unskippable as an internal project for my for my little team. Uh, we were going into all of these uh, ad agencies and saying, well, you know, you need to make all this content and you need to do all of this optimization. And, and we were we were putting a lot on them. Uh, and I think because we weren't making anything, it was sort of academic to us. And so it w- it's easy to say to people like, oh, you need to do a lot of other stuff differently, but uh, it didn't seem fair to me on some level. And so I said to my team, we're going to start making content ourselves. We're going to make it and we're going to run it on YouTube and we're going to understand, we're going to test it ourselves and optimize it ourselves. And, and for us, it started shooting videos on a phone and, and running it on my credit card. I just said like, we're going to do this thing. It's not, it's, it's for us. And so the first, the first test we ran, we called uh, a portrait versus landscape, but it wasn't about orientation. It was, it was literally, will we pay attention to a face longer or will we pay attention to a landscape longer? We were looking at one of those uh, auto ads that started with a long, slow tracking shot of, you know, beautiful South Africa and debating. We said, oh, nobody's going to watch that. Everyone's going to skip. And we started to argue about, you know, do we pay attention to face? Do we need to see faces? And, and in this age, we just don't need to ask that question. Like, we don't need to debate it. You can, you can get data. So we shot a minute uh, of a guy on our team, literally just him against a brick wall in our office, and a minute out our uh, designer's window in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Not a particularly beautiful view, just a view. 
And uh, so I said to the first person on my team who was setting up the test, I said, you know, let's just run these and I don't know, spend a hundred dollars. I thought it would take, you know, a month. Like who's going to watch a minute of a guy sitting against a brick wall, not drinking a cup of coffee. And she came in the next morning and said, we spent $300 last night. And we had this, we had this incredibly high view through rate. I mean, people were watching at a much higher rate than they watch, you know, even good ads, even ads from trailers, from movies and so on. This guy against a brick wall drinking a cup of coffee. And that was the first signal to me that, that, that there were viewing behaviors that we didn't understand. We didn't understand why people chose to watch or not. And so we did a couple of more tests ourselves on whether we want to watch a sort of beautiful HD quality video or we want to watch, you know, roughed up shot on a phone video or do we, 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 shot, a, we shot a framing test. Do we want to see somebody full on looking at camera or somebody's sort of classic TV three quarter profile? And each, each time we got the super interesting results, but, but these very surprising levels of interaction and kinds of interaction. And that's what I think when I found out that, that Google was doing this intrigued me the most because everybody that I talked to is trying to figure this stuff out. You know, how has, how has mobile changed everything? How are our attention spans changing? Where does storytelling fit in with a landscape previously that had nothing to do with storytelling really? And it had to do with brand awareness you know, how many times can you get a logo in there? How many products can you talk about? And nobody seems to have figured this stuff out. And then suddenly Google come in and you guys have all the data. I mean, you have access to everything. And there's this amazing quote from you that I, that I either found, read or heard. I'm not sure. You said it should be an amazing time to be in advertising right now. You know, the word here being should. Mm-hmm. We know who they are. We know where they are. We know what they like. But somehow it turns out that this is actually one of the most challenging times. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's just so right. You have all this data, yet even you were at a bit of a loss mm-hmm. before you sat down and started testing this stuff. Is that actually how our behavior is changing? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I think that there, I mean, we, we're looking at a, a billion hours a day of view time of what people watching. A billion hours. Isn't that a crazy? That's insane. The average amount of screen time for all of us has gone up an hour a day in the last 12 months, an hour a day. We do, we, we spend more time with screens than we do anything except sleeping. Now I think we've just overtaken working and you have to expect at that rate that our behavior is going to evolve quickly. We're just spending too much time doing it for it not to change. And yet I think in particular for broadcast advertising, you know, there are a lot of conventions. There's a lot of muscle memory. There's a lot of money at stake. Uh, and so people are reluctant to, to, to change. So that's one side. And the other side are the digital folks saying, oh, everything's different. The world's totally different. You know, the, the, you, you can't possibly take anything with you from the past. And I don't think that's right either. Uh, there have been generations of amazing storytellers on the advertising side and broadcast television and movies. Like people know things about storytelling that are still valuable. And so I think for us, it's been digging into those sides and not assuming that we know, saying, you know, I, I don't know, but you don't know. It's easy enough to get data. Let's, let's find out, right? and, and see, see what we don't know or what we think we know is not right. What's the folk wisdom? What's actually grounded in, in understanding? I love the fact that you also put your own credit card down there. You, <laughs> you were so unsure about the experiment that you were like, okay, let's just, I'll just I'll put my money down before I ask anybody. It was like $100. How, how bad could it be? And then she was like, we spent $350 last night. I was like, oh God, shut it down, shut it down. <laughs> <laughs> Quick, while I get budget approval. That's right. So let's, well, let's kick into to these experiments that you guys ran. How many people are on your team, by the way? There are three people on my team, but there are over 250 people uh, across Google who are working on these experiments with us or 
very small team, but we we, uh, we engage a lot of folks and a lot of folks are working with their clients uh, with us. So you got 250 people looking at over a billion hours a day worth of data. Oh, there are tons and tons of people who are looking at the data. Mm. That's not just my team. That That's that's what's running through the pipes at YouTube. And and my little slice of it is, is looking at the ads, uh, the ad side of the YouTube world, and then you know, a subset of that, like what's effective and what can we draw from that from advertisers. So All right. my specific team is, is, is just focused on breakthrough creative opportunities in video advertising. Got it. Got it. So let's look at experiment. The, I don't know if it was the first experiment that you did, but it was certainly the first one that I watched. And for anybody that's listening, all these experiments have been turned into three to four minute videos on YouTube. So anything we're talking about, you can go in, you can check it out yourself. So the first one that I watched was called the mobile recut. Mm-hmm. You tell me, tell me, or anyone that's listening, a little bit about what you were trying to test with this particular experiment. Yeah, that was our that was our first public experiment, uh, and it was focused on mobile. Uh, and the and the core question is: Is there a better way of telling stories for mobile? What what we were hearing is that mobile was about vertical video, but other than that, nobody had a sense like. They had sort of, some people said, oh, it needs to be shorter, it needs to be shorter. That wasn't necessarily what we had seen, but were there other dimensions that we weren't sure? So we went to BBDO, who was a great partner of ours, and we said, hey, do you want to do you want to explore this question with us? And they brought Mountain Dew to the table. They said, yep, Mountain Dew's a great partner. Um, they've got this great, this great asset for us to experiment with. And the process of this experimentation is to start with a hypothesis that you are going to either prove or disprove and find ways of exploring it with assets that are live in market. So we don't do any, you know, any, any lab tests. We don't do any focus groups. Um, it's all uh, out there in the world. So in this case, we had a hypothesis. We think the behaviors will be, will be different in mobile. So we'll start with a control, which is the, this original 30-second uh, ad that, that they had done for Mountain Dew, which was very successful. It had 8 million views, was very popular. People really had responded well to it. And then the second version that we tested was based on the sort of conventional wisdom within BBDO. You need to put the brand in the first five seconds because otherwise people will skip. And other than that, you know, you can just run the ad. So it's five seconds that you can skip. So the BBDO, huge advertising firm, their wisdom was you've got to get the brand up there very quickly so that if people yep. skip, they still see it. Yep, yep. And the, the research essentially says... Uh, yes, there is value of putting the brand first, but when you put the brand first, then it suppresses view through it. Then people are less inclined to watch it because they think it's just you know a, a brand push, not really an ad story. And so we thought, well, okay, well we'll try that and see what happens. Uh, and then the third in the in the video, it's called pure fun, but for a long time it was called the anti ad. And we said that it's a thing that doesn't look like an ad or sound like an ad or feels like an ad. It doesn't have the language of ad, but it's just it's just random like you don't know what, what you don't know what's happening one of the early unbranded experiments we had we had run we had just run a black screen nothing just black no sound no nothing and had gotten a, a pretty high view through rate of i mean shockingly high uh, and then we ran it again black screen but we had text on the screen that said this is just a black screen nothing happens really it's just black and then it goes black and again we got a super high view through rate so hang on when you say super high how many people watched a black screen uh more than 30 percent of the people who are served the ad watch at least 30 seconds of just a black screen, pure, pure black. That is amazing. It's amazing, right? It's amazing. It, well, it's amazing, but it's also really hard to make sense of, you know, if you're, if you're looking yep. to interpret this data 
yeah. you know, the traditional viewpoint of it's got to be engaging, it's got to be, it's got to be. And then you're saying, well, 30% of people will literally just sit there and watch a black screen. And I, I, it's really hard to interpret that from a data viewpoint as to what makes something engaging. Our hypothesis was that it was the mystery of it, right? That they were expecting something to happen and, and in anticipation of that, they were willing to watch that. Uh, and then the same thing when we ran it with a text that said, you know, nothing happens, it's just a black screen. They thought it was a joke, right? They were going to be tricked and something awesome was going to come. So there's something there around intrigue. Yes. Well, I, from, for, from, from my perspective, it's something around the, the language of advertising where, where we imagine that there are things that need to be in ads because that's what an ad is. That's our muscle memory of what ads are. And we think they are necessary parts of ads. And for consumers, they just signal that it's probably going to be a waste of their time, right? And so when I hear the, the music bed from a stock music house, whether I recognize it's that or not, unconsciously, I'm just saying like, this is probably going to waste my time. And the story needs to be that much better or shocking or interesting or intriguing in a different sort of way. But when I see something that I don't understand, I don't know what it is, then I'm willing to watch. Like we're super hungry for stories. We're super hungry for content. We've never watched so much. So it's interesting. We did a series of tests in particular with, with the movie studios and we would run their top performing ad. So, a you know, either a traditionally cut trailer or a, or a 30 second ad that sort of explains the story of the movie with quippy scenes and so on. Uh, and we ran it against a, a straight scene lift from, from the movie, like no idea who these characters are or the plot of the movie. We don't attempt to explain the plot of the movie, but, but just a straight scene lift. And those scene lifts did much better, a phenomenal, I mean, 200, 300% better than the ads. And for us, that was sort of confirmation of what we'd seen in the black screen that people they don't want to watch an ad, but they want they're they love content. They're interested in it. They'll watch a scene. It's not about denying that you're an ad or denying a brand. It's just about jumping into a story. And then I think conventions of advertising are they hold us back. Mm, so that says a lot about the future of advertising. You know, we are willing to give our attention. We are willing to give our time to a black screen, even. Yet, as soon as we feel that there is an agenda other than the telling of a story, we're out of there. We're out of there pretty quick. I think that's what, for me, makes it an exciting time to be advertising, in advertising, right? I, I think we just need to shed this idea that we know exactly what has to be in an ad. If we have the four boxes that we tick and we put those in our ad, it'll, it'll be effective. I don't think there's any safe ground. People know, they know all of the tricks of, of ads. And so we got to put the, you know, the, the, the tricks away and tell better stories, tell amazing stories, interesting stories, take more risks. There's no safe place to say, well, I've got my pack shot and I've got my music bed and I have the two lines in the quip and I land again on the pack shot and we're good. I, I don't think that that, that kind of advertising is going to be successful. So let's, let's go back to this experiment again, because I got completely distracted by your black screen story and it's still kind of screwing with my brain here. You ran three different lengths of ad. So for Mountain Dew, three different lengths of ad. This is specifically just the tests on mobile, wasn't it? Whether our behavior changes on a mobile device. Right. So what did you find? You ran three different lengths, three different lengths of ads. What got the best cut through? Three different types of ads. Uh, and the, the view through rate on the desktop was the same. So on desktop, the response to all three was the same. Um, and on mobile, the, the view through rate on the pure fun cut, the sort of anti-ad cut was 20% uh, higher. 
So we could see on mobile, there was a difference than on desktop, right? If, if, if the difference was just purely these ads are different, then we would have seen differences on both mobile and desktop. Mm. But the fact that they were the same on desktop and yet there was this big difference on mobile signaled to us there is something in the storytelling of this third, this pure fun execution that's very different and that has an impact on behavior that's, that's significant. We didn't see that same lift in, in the, the brand metric side of things, um, but we have seen it in, in other places with other experiments. This again was an early foray for us. I think there's, there's something there around long form versus short form, which is a, a fascination of mine because I'm such a long form person. Hence the, you know, working in the speaking industry and podcasts and I love long form. And yet the rise of digital and specifically the rise of mobile seems to be, have been pushing things more and more towards the short form. You've got Snapchat, you've got Twitter. But what seems to be happening here is it's, it's coming back around where it had gone to shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter. And now we've reached this point where actually the longer form are doing better again. Even Twitter's expanded its character length from 140 to, to 280. We seem to have fallen back in love with longer form stories. I, I think that, 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 that we got enamored with the idea that there was value in the sort of pure shortness. And I think what, our, what we seem to have uncovered is it's not about the length, it's about choice. If I choose it, I want a lot of it. And I think Twitter doubling the number of characters is a, not really even an indication of that. I think the fact that the medium has been built successfully on the back of Twitter and, you know, drawn a big audience over for much longer form, not 280 characters, but you know, 10, 15 minute read essay reads almost. I, if you had asked anyone, you know, uh, two years ago, three years ago, hey, do you think Twitter should start a, a long form essay platform as their next iteration? Nobody would have said yes, but it's been, I think, remarkably successful. So I think this idea of choice is what's missing, right? We, we, we thought it was about length. It's not about length. It's about being chosen. I, I choose what I want. If I choose it, I want a lot of it. I want, I want tons of it, right? I want, I want 10 years of Game of Thrones or I want six hours of Ozark on the weekend. So that raises a logical question. And the logical question for me, at least, is what constitutes better? You know, you had said that the learning here is that, you know, there's a shift from quicker to better, as you were saying, to choice, things that we would choose. Mm -hmm. have, you, have you noticed in everything that you've tested, is there a formula there, there to what's better, what's making us choose certain things and then want to indulge in hours of them? I think that the, 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 we've discovered a couple of things. That One, that attention is very fluid. We make up our minds pretty quickly. And so... The, the sort of traditional storytelling arc that, you know, I'm going to establish the scene and I'm going to build my characters and then I'm going to create drama from them. There's no time for that in a lot of circumstances. People are deciding too quickly. And in our world, you know, you've got five seconds and then they're skipping. But in, in all worlds, in TV shows, in, in traditional ads, people are, are making up their minds much more quickly. And so therefore, you need to jump people into the action. Uh, we show a series of, of trailers um, and in the first you know, four or five seconds, somebody's getting punched in the face or there's a car chase or a gunfight. There is no establishing of character. And once those things happen, once you choose it, then they can be much longer. The trailers are actually you know, almost twice the length of, of traditional trailers. And so it's not shorter, it's, it's be chosen. And then you have time to tell a story that's richer and much more interesting. 
And even within those longer stories, we're seeing structural changes to how the stories unfold. They have many sort of smaller chapters, many acts within them, so that you choose and keep choosing. And that builds a different kind of narrative, uh, I think. And you can see it in a lot of different media. So we're, for anybody that's looking to put together content, because there's two different, two different people here, isn't there? There's the large corporates and what they're learning about, you know, you can't simply transpose the ads that traditionally did well on traditional media, on television, and put it online and think that it's going to have the same results. So that's number one. But then also for someone who's just looking to build content, you've got a very short amount of time. And if we look at YouTube, five seconds to really get to the crux of what, you know, the, the high impact piece mm -hmm. and then build the story afterwards, but don't try and build the story up to the high impact piece. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, once they choose you, you have permission to, to, to draw them in. I mean, I, I think depending on, on how, how you think about story structure, you know, the, the odyssey starts in the middle and then goes back to the beginning. So you could say, well, that, that structure has been around a long time. I think that those dynamics are just super pronounced, right? So if you're, if you're building content, you got to give people a reason to choose you right at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And then once they choose you and they trust you, yeah, make it longer. I mean, people are, there's a history podcast I listen to. I think each of the podcasts is three or four hours long. And, you know, three when you're into hours. it. Yeah, yeah. It's just super, super long. They're incredibly detailed, but they're really interesting. Yeah, but I love that again, you know, the, the long form. I think that there's just, I don't know, there's something you can achieve with long form that's very difficult to achieve in, in small bites. Well, all our forms are getting longer. I mean, the Hollywood movies are getting longer. Books are getting longer. The chapters are shorter, right? More intense experiences in some ways, but the books themselves are longer. I think we're in this golden age of long form storytelling where we think of a storytelling not in shows, but in seasons. So the length is longer, but the chapters are shorter and more intense. And our choice time has to be hugely impactful at the beginning of all of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let me, I'm going to want to move on to experiment number two. Again, two in my world. I don't know if it was the second one that you did. And it was go short or go long and, and similar. But the fundamental difference that you tested here, it wasn't how many people watched the ad. It was persuasiveness, the, the relationship between length and persuasion. Correct. So can you just give us a bit of background on, on, on that particular experiment? Yeah, so that we, we did with uh, Droga 5 and Mondelez, and we were, we were looking at the impact of length. You know, there was a lot of debate, how long should my ad be? And we had research that said, the longer you can get people to watch on a sort of second-by-second -second basis, the more valuable it is. But all that research is done looking back. It was done in aggregate, and it wasn't done with a single story. So we wanted to take up a, a single story. Droga had done a beautiful documentary of this family, and they had a long-form version, which was two minutes and change, and then they had a 30-second version, and we cut a 15-second version. And we ran the three of them to say, what was the impact? And when we, when we ran them out in the world, the short form had uh, the strongest ad recall, right? I saw an ad from uh, Honeymade. But it had uh, essentially no persuasive value. It did not change favorability at all. And the 30-second and the longer form both had much stronger impacts on favorability. Uh, the 30 slightly higher than the longer form. And when we looked at the longer form, you didn't see any mention of the brand, no audio, no packaging, no nothing until more than a minute into the ad. So you had to have watched for a long time 
in the span of it in order to even understand it was from a brand. And by that time, you know, the audience was probably 25% of the original audience. So very impactful for the people who watched, probably the opportunity to have branded earlier. So, you know, some more people were aware it was from a brand, but it really showed us the power of link. If you want to, if you want ads to persuade people of something, to change their minds, to rethink, you need time. And, and in order to get time, you need to be chosen. If you think that ads are, you know, the way ads work is that it's about mental availability. Like you're at the store shelf and my brand is top of mind uh, as, as your countryman Byron Sharp advocates, then you make a different kind of ad. Then you don't need long form ads. Then I would do all six second ads, right? I would all, I, I would do all ads about mental availability the logo and the pop of that that's recognizable. And, and I would flood, I would flood you with that all the time. But underneath that all, that question of, you know, how do you think ads work is a critical one. And it's, it's above my pay grade as a creative director. I'm just trying to make them effective depending on how people think that they work. Mm. What I loved about the Honeymade ad when you were testing this persuasiveness piece is what struck me about it was that it's, it's a human story. So what Honeymade, and Honeymade is a, is a US brand, what exactly do Honeymade sell? It's a graham cracker. Right. So it's a cracker with, with graham flour in it. Got it. But th- what they what they chose to do is they, they did this beautiful documentary about a family on a particular day. Mm-hmm. And so what's what struck me about that was the reality, whether, and I'm going to be getting into this a little bit more with the third experiment that you did, but whether our new appreciation and thirst and hunger for reality has impacted storytelling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, we haven't dug into subject matter. In, in my mind, a great story is a great story. Some are human stories, some are more real, some are more authentic, some are incredibly artificial. One of the things my team does now is these unskippable reports where we pull a thousand or so of the top performing ads each each month and, and look at them all just to see what's out there, see what's happening. And the variety continues to astonish. You know, they're not all documentary ads. They're not all product ads, but there are some of, of all of those and some wacky and absurd ads and some sincere emotional ads. And th- th- that variety doesn't seem to diminish, even as I think reality TV has swamped us or we want the authenticity of YouTube and Instagram influencers, the lives that they have, access to our talent. So it's interesting to see. I think it's going yeah, to be really interesting to see how that plays out from a storytelling perspective. Mm-hmm. So talking about reality and the role of the role of reality and the content that we consume and the content that we find compelling, the the next experiment that you did was about demographics. So it was whether mm-hmm. this generation, this upcoming generation has different tastes in the content they want to consume as the previous generation mm-hmm. and how that's changed, you know, what we want to consume and ultimately what we want to buy. So mm-hmm. again, can you walk me through that experiment? Sure. Yeah, this was for L'Oreal. Uh, they were concerned with reaching a younger generation of folks. They were obviously very strong brands with older consumers and not so much with younger. Uh, and so the question was, uh, is there a difference in the way that they respond to content? So we had a, a, a sort of be- beautiful traditional TV ad. It was you know models on the runway and a professional makeup artist and gorgeous, uh, highly produced visuals. And then they had a, a how-to video, also highly produced, but with digital talent in it. And then a third video that we literally shot in, in the uh, supply closet of a production studio that we work with. We used exactly the same script from the second video 
but tried to make somebody who looked authentic, relatable, right? There's smudges on the makeup palette that she's using. She's talking directly to cameras if she's talking to her friends. When you said digital talent there, you meant, because when you said digital talent, the first thing that came to my head was, oh my goodness, was it like a hologram? Was it, <laughs> it, was, a, it was a blogger, wasn't it? It was a very popular blogger. Yeah, a beauty blogger. Got beauty it. blogger. Yeah. But the, the, the quality of the second one was, you know, it was very highly produced. It was very beautiful in line with the branding of L'Oreal. And, and again, we ran them out in the world. Um, and we saw, interestingly, for uh, all different ages, that the view-through rate for the TV commercial was the highest, which was unexpected for us. But when you looked at the ad response, uh, it was exactly opposite. So the oldest audience, uh, which was uh, 35 to 54, watched the TV commercial the most and had the highest uh, ad impact, right? They had the highest favorability response, recall and favorability. And for the youngest audience, it was exactly the opposite. They watched that commercial the most, but it went in, in one eye and out the other, essentially. Uh, and they had the strongest response to the, to the very authentic, you know, shot in the supply closet, uh, looked like your friend uh, video that we shot ourselves. So exactly the opposite response. Which is, you know, there's been an assumption, especially recently, and, and seems to be coming to its close now, that the best way to sell something, pop a celebrity or an authority in the ad, do an endorsement, you know, boom, sorted. Thousands of people buy your product, millions of people buy your product. But what you're saying is people will watch that, like people want to watch that highly produced, that glam. They want to see what's going on, but when they make a decision or when they, when they, the ones they remember, they're the ones that, that have that kind of reality about them, that are literally somebody in a supply closet. Or in your case, you know, the very first experiment that you ran, somebody just stood with a blank background drinking a cup of coffee. Right. And a very strong difference by age, right? The older audience wanted the highly produced content. The younger audience responded to the opposite. And that was our, that was one of our first clues that there may be stronger differences within audience response than we imagined. So we've done a whole series of experiments since then on the relative value of editing. One of the things that's a big concern for a lot of advertisers, you know, do I need to have a Facebook edit, a YouTube edit, a Snapchat edit, a Twitter edit of my content? And we did a set of experiments there that said, you know, there are some differences by length, but if you're the same length, then you can use, you can use the same piece of content. You can create a 15 second where the content is front loaded and it's framed and it's paced quickly and so on. Uh, And it'll be effective, you know, on YouTube and on, and on Facebook. But then we asked a counter question, which is if you were going to do one edit, what would you do? And my choice based on what I've seen would probably be a gender based edit. I would do a different story for men and women and run it across all the platforms rather than do one edit that I cut for Facebook and for YouTube. Um, or if I was going after an all-female audience, I might do a, you know, an older cut and a younger cut. And I'm not sure exactly what would go in those, but I think it's more impactful than, than a pure platform edit. But that's another way that digital has completely reinvented content because now you can specify gender. You can specify, you know, I want to hit that particular, you know, women of a certain age, men in a certain place. So mm-hmm. that in and of itself has been a huge shift, the ability to do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One of the ramifications of what you're talking about is also budget. You know, now you wouldn't have even tried to take on a L'Oreal previously because they have billions of dollars and how's it, how are you even going to start? Whereas mm-hmm. now if you've, got, if you've got a cupboard and something relatively interesting to say or a product relatively interesting to test, you don't really need the budgets anymore. Correct. To be able to take on, take on the larger brands. 
Correct. If you build an audience with a clever message and a strong product, I mean, Dollar Shave Club in the US, I think the guy made a hilarious video. And, oh, that one's you know, amazing. So taking, on, taking on Gillette. I think that that's partially true. I think if you build and own an audience, you can do a lot of things with that audience that, that are successful. I, I think that the people who do that you know, are tremendously talented and it's a ton of hard work and trial and error, but there are different routes to market than there have ever been before. What is it that, you know, as we're, as we're kind of coming to a close now, if there are brands listening to this, you know, creative directors, marketing managers, what is it that brands now need to understand about storytelling that has perhaps been misunderstood or they haven't had the, the ability to be able to implement before now? I think two things. I think one, it's, it's never been easier to learn. So you can learn more faster now than you ever, than you ever have. And that I think is exciting, a little terrifying, but exciting. And two, that there's no safe ground, you know, that there's no, you can't just fall back on best practices. I I was in an agency not very long ago and I was talking about mobile video and he said, Oh, well, we've got, you know, we've had mobile video best practices for a while. We're, we're very good. We're very versed. And I said, oh, really? How, how long have you had them? And they said, ah, you know, three, four years at least. And I said, that's great. When, when was the data from that those best practices are based on? You know, they thought about it. I, they said, you know, 18 months or something. So five years, that data is five years old. Like, you do really think that that's current? I think everyone is, is hungering for kind of best practices, but there's no, there's no real appreciation for how quickly they're aging out. And so there's no place to retreat to. You have to go forward. You have to you, know, you have to compete against the best content that's out there because that's what your audience is paying attention to. I think that's fun. It's terrifying, but it means that we have to take risks. We got to take creative risks. And, and again, for me, that's a world I'm excited to live in. So what if I'm a, in my early 20s or in my early 40s, regardless of age, I've got an iPhone, <laughs> I've got a wardrobe, <laughs> I'm set to go. I'm, I want to get some content out there. What, what should I focus on? What's the piece of advice you would give me in terms of starting out and putting together content that people are likely to choose? I always say go where the blood is. Like go with, with what... Oh God, that sounds dangerous. What you're excited about, the place where the thing that gets you excited, interested and fascinated. I think that the more people try and make content for somebody else, the less successful it is. And the more focused you are on things that you love in this world, you will find people who love it also. You'll find a community and build on top of that community with more things that you love. I think that's the, I think that's the best thing about being a content creator right now is, is you have to do a thing that you deeply, deeply love and you'll find people who deeply love it also. So where is all of this going? Like that's kind of the question that's on my mind as we have this conversation. Where is it going? You know, how do you see what we will be consuming five years from now and on what devices, you know, when you visualize that point five years in the future, what are you, where do you think it'll be? I can barely see like a week into the future. So <laughs> I you know five years from now. I thought you might say that. I think that, that when you try genuine VR, uh, like if you strap into a headset and, and do that, that's actually very mind blowing in the way it engages your physiological systems of balance the immersion there is extraordinary. So I find it hard to believe that it wouldn't be much more like that. And then I, as I see the sort of advances that are happening rapidly in AR, uh, you know, the, the pixel where you can see the Imperial stormtroopers out in front of you, I think is amazing. So I think the virtual and real worlds will be much more mixed. 
But the things that are the most amazing to me right now are the advances in, in, in machine learning, knowing who we are and where we are and what we might choose and the patterns of our behavior and how those things are served. I think the world is going to feel in a lot of ways a lot easier in terms of media. And I think the storytelling is going to be incredibly immersive. I, I, I think we're headed in, in rich and fun times, uh, enjoyable times. And if you look around at the storytelling that's here and you think back, you know, five years, 10 years from when I was a kid, like TV was, TV was terrible. And now it's amazing. Now it's like novels all the time. The, the, you know, I look back at the wire and, and around at the things that are coming out now. I think, oh my God, they're just, they're just so many amazing stories being told with so much talent and capability. Uh, it's fun. It's talking about AR and VR. There's, a, there's an incredible company out of Australia at the moment who are making, I think it's called Alert, the Alert Shirt. They can put pads on your favorite sports player, electrode pads, and that feeds their physiology. I'm going to get all the terminology wrong here, but it, it feeds their physiology into a computer. And if you wear this certain shirt while you're watching the game from anywhere in the world, you can feel everything that that player is feeling. You can feel their heart increase, their heart rate increase when they're taking that final kick. When they get tackled, I, 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 I don't even know what that would feel like, an electric shock, I'm not sure, but... You feel everything that they're feeling in real time. Now that, if you just take that and overlay it on the future of storytelling, I think will be an incredible, the world will look completely different five, 10 years from now. Amazing. So what do you, you know, you've done all these, you've done all these experiments. And as you said, you know, your, your love is, is being in the background and, and watching this stuff play out and, you're a student of it as much as, as anybody else is. What's the thing that surprised you out of all these experiments? What's the thing that surprised you the most? The thing that surprised me the most is how wrong my own judgment has been. I've been in advertising for a long time. I've made a ton of creative. My, my friends are all creatives. And, and I thought when I started, you know, it'd be a little bit different, but I'd get the hang of it. Maybe there were some tweaks. I thought it was kind of a tuning. And the number of times I've been totally wrong or I've tried to do something that's intentionally wrong and it's been much more powerful than I imagined has been really striking and humbling. Uh, and I think that that for me has been part of the fun of it has been to say, you know, I, I, I have the luxury uh, working with a, on a platform like YouTube where I can say, I don't know, but I also know that you don't know and your agency doesn't know your, our judgment is wrong. Um, and so we all collectively need to tune it in a new way. And for me, I think that's that that's part of the real fun. If if there are only you know if there are only a few swamis and they're the only people who have the answers, and we all have to kowtow to them, I don't think that's a fun way for the world to work. But to live in a world where you know there's a there's a 14 year old kid with a smartphone somewhere, and he plugs into a way you can tell stories, and we all it just lights us all on fire. I think that's amazing. I think that's a fun. I I, I think that's a fun world to live in. Final question, if I were to give you the stage and a microphone and not that I could give you a bigger stage than you currently have with YouTube, so this is a bit of a defunct question, but if I, if I could put in front of you everything you already have, which is basically anyone you'd ever want to influence, what is the one thing based on everything that you've done, what's the one thing you'd want them to know? I would want them to, to just be incredibly excited with a sense of possibility about what they can do themselves, about the stories they can tell and, and the access that they have 
Uh, it's interesting. I, I sort of became aware of it as I was interviewing people. And you have one set of people who come in and they say, well, I, I'm interested in this job because it would give me this opportunity to do this thing I've never done. And I didn't hire any of those people. The people I hired were people who said, well, I started doing this thing and it's really cool. And, and now I'm doing it and I want to do this job because it's a part of doing this thing that I'm, I'm already excited about. Do the thing, right? Make the podcast, shoot the film, put it out, find an audience, connect with those people. So if you could put me in front of anyone, um, I would be put. I, I would have you put me in front of, of, of young people and say, you know, make an amazing thing that blows my mind and come back and tell me about it or, or expose me to it. I can't wait to see what it is. Well, I don't need to give you that stage because you, you already have it. So I'm, I'm so excited to see what you guys are going to put together next. I genuinely, I found your content, I can't even remember how, and I followed it very closely ever since. And I think that the work that you're doing is fascinating and important and challenges a lot of assumptions, which I love. So thank you. And thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It's been my pleasure, although I wish we could change places and I could spend the rest of the week in Bali, but, uh, but I'll, I'll forgive that to you. And uh, uh, thanks for having me on. <laughs> well, build a snowman for me. Okay, I'll do that. Thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and found lots of useful insights and ideas for growing your influence. Thanks, as always, to our producer and the main brain behind the Inside Influence podcast, Lauren Kelly. In the words of Jerry Maguire, you complete me. You can find out a little bit more about me and the work that I do by jumping on my website, juliemasters.com, or you can follow me on Insta, jules.masters. If you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an interview. 